0: Hello and welcome to the Andyplex. I'm your host, Andy Maiorano, and this is episode 21, A Podcast Carol, where we will be discussing the 1984 made-for-TV retelling of the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. And here to aid me in this is none other than my father, Giovanni Maiorano, a.k.a. Dad, who is sitting right next to me. Dad has been a big proponent of me pursuing the arts, and also got me hooked on a Christmas carol when I was very young, say circa 91, upon recording the 1984 version off of cable onto VHS. It is this version we will be focusing on today, with Scrooge being none other than the great...
1: George C. Scott. Yes. A.K.A. Patton. (laughs) That's
0: right. So anyway, we're going to be diving into that very deeply, and Dad and I just saw a Philadelphia rendition... Of a one-man Christmas Carol last week on the 29th of December, and uh, or was it the 30th? The 30th.
1: That's yes. right, it was the 30th. Well, welcome, Dad. Uh, good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: This is a real honor and pleasure. You're a, a big hero of mine. You've always been a big inspiration and a big proponent of me going into the arts, going into film, going into my passions. You've always said pursue my passions. You and mom have always been very, very supportive. And it's been a tradition of mine to come back for the holidays and uh, kind of hang around with you guys for a couple of weeks and uh, eat too much and enjoy the holidays. So thanks for having me.
1: You're very welcome. It's always great to see you. It brings back a lot of fine memories of when we're, you know, we, you and your brother were young growing up and now that we have... Uh, two younger. Kids, younger. You yeah, yes, correct me. Younger. And uh, we have two granddaughters, and we watch their interaction. It's a, uh, it's been a very fine experience, and it's been actually a great holiday for us. It's been great,
0: you, despite the Omicron uh, coronavirus spike that we've just been experiencing. Uh, you know, it kind of forced us to slow down, and honestly, I've I haven't seen a lot of my friends, so that kind of stinks. But. Uh, I've seen, I feel like, more of you guys and the family, and that doesn't stink. And it's been, to be honest, kind of perfect. Uh, Gianni, my brother, he and his daughter, oldest, Francesca, did get the the horrible virus, but fortunately they weren't too sick, and they hung out at Gull Point, which is the, the condo that you and Mom own in southern Delaware. So we missed them on Christmas Day, but we then had a second Christmas just a couple of days ago. And then uh, they were back over yesterday for my birthday party. We, uh, we had a good old time, and then the girls spent the night. And actually, we just saw them off about an hour ago and uh, reclaimed the household to do this.
1: Yes, toys everywhere. Nothing but a big playground of Christmas toys and books. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, and they're learning Italian and German, thanks to you and Gianni. And uh, just this morning, they were doing an Italian video
1: dance Italian dance video and what is it called uh, it's called Vedo Vedo and uh, they really uh, are into this with the dancing and moving around that the performers do uh, in the video it's it's about you know four minutes so it gives them a lot of activity a lot of action and plus uh, familiarity with the language la bella lingua italiano
0: yes it's really inspiring to watch them work and uh Obviously, at that age, they're they're sponges, and I know you taught Gianni and I German growing up, uh, and Gianni probably took more advantage of it so far than I have, but it's still in my head, and I'm very grateful for the experience and lessons learned. Before you have a chance to realize what what's going on, you have multiple languages in your brain. It's pretty cool. Yes, correct. So, Dad, um, where to begin with you? You're well, a... Uh, you're a unique individual with a lot of worldly experience. Is there anything you want to mention first about your journey, your life?
1: Well, to go back uh, not all that far in geologic time, uh, uh, before I was married, I would be involved in community theater, and I, uh, which required a lot of singing. And, uh, and I did not sing very well, if at all, but I always made the cast and would often have multiple acting roles, And I could hum along with lip-sync anyway, with the chorus. But uh, these community theaters always wanted me to be in the production because I'd sold 50 tickets. I could get 50 tickets sold. (laughs) Nice. So that was great. And and dinner theaters, that's always a nice thing to do. So I was in uh, several productions in several different venues. And uh, I I really enjoyed it. And I guess... uh, Another reason that I stayed with it was because it was a good opportunity for me to meet ladies that were interested in the same thing I was. So that was a good way to meet people, meet girls that, in an unintrusive way without being pushy. So there was that advantage as well, besides seeing my name in the playbill.
0: Always exciting. Yeah, my uh, first memory of acting was, I believe... I was six or seven years old, and we, in church, First Unitarian Church, which had a large sanctuary. And I remember we put together a clown, because you're a clown, and you said you wanted to introduce me to this clowning thing. And we got to be clowns and act on stage in front of a pretty sizable audience.
1: Yes, it, uh, it was a packed house, uh, right. the, uh, the clowning venue, a lot of children there. And uh, we, uh, we highlighted Andrew with uh, a, a mime of it, it Ain't Easy Being Green by Kermit the Frog. And he was all dressed. Right. Andrew was dressed in green, and I was in my, my clown costume. And uh, it was great. And after the performance, uh, there were many other performances as well. We weren't singular in that. you know. People came up to us and said, it was just so touching the way you did that with your son. That I was in tears, and that was that was a, a off, an often comment that we heard. So yeah. Yeah, I guess we did a good job. And, yeah, we're, and you uh, got bit by the bug. <laughs> so. I, got by the
0: bug so. <laughs> I got bit by the bug, so thank you for getting me bit. Cause I, I love the whole experience. I, I was a little nervous, and I still get nervous before I go up on stage or get on screen, um, although it's kind of a rush. I don't know if I would use the word nervous as much as just... A little bit of little little bit of nerves there, but it's kind of exciting. Um, I really really enjoyed it, and it, it it blew me away, and it was a formative experience for me. And then I remember you also inspired me and nudged me along in school to do the the plays uh, back at Montessori. So I was Montessori kindergarten to third grade, so four years, and they had a pretty cool. It was a private school, and uh, they had a pretty cool program there, and they did plays. And I remember I tried out for Chicken Little, the narrator slash oak tree role. And I have fond memories of being in the den over here at uh, at the house that we still reside in, that you guys still reside in, and that we're at now. And you were putting me in paper bags, and we stitched a bunch of paper bags together and painted them. And so that was the kind of bark for the tree as the narrator. And I got to say the sky is falling and uh, all that. So, yeah, those are kind of my earliest formative memories. But I remember, uh, you know, you and Mom definitely were huge proponents of me getting on stage and, and trying out for things. And, uh, you know, music, all kinds of the arts. I started playing the trumpet very young. You said you wanted to give me an instrument. I started doing karate. I didn't keep it. I didn't keep that very, very long. I think Gianni lasted longer than I did in the karate department. But, yeah, you're always very... Um, Huge proponents of me going into the creative arts and trying out things and finding things that interested me, and, and uh, so anyway, I thank you for that because I believe that was a massive reason that I'm still doing it.
1: Well, I I don't want people to ever have to say, "Gee, I wish I had," because you can't go back on a "gee, I wish I had." You mm. can only go forward. So you give it a try, you do it your best, and you you roll the dice and you see what comes, and that's how I always figured it.
0: Yeah. I love that. I know. It's like, sure, there's a few things I regretted that I did that I probably shouldn't have done. But most of the time, it's the other way around, right? Yes.
1: Well, even Frank Sinatra had regrets, if you remember his, his trademark song. Uh, my Way? Yes. Regrets, I have a few. And that's the last part of it I remember. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's all you need. Um, right. Yeah. So anyway, thanks again for all that. Um. So you are a Delaware native. You were born in Wilmington?
1: Incorrect. I was born in Chester, Pennsylvania. Oh, jeez. We moved only here about my own dad to here. Uh, uh, my, my parents and my older sister. We moved to uh, Wilmington when I was maybe four years old because uh, my mother's stepfather, so my grandfather is the only grandfather I ever knew, he had opened a sub shop in Wilmington. And... He was part of the first sub-maker team in Wilmington. He and his cousin opened up a sub-shop. And then, in typical Italian fashion, they had a disagreement. So my grandfather moved four blocks away and opened up his sub-shop in a a very nice house. And we moved down. Uh, My father still worked in Chester, which wasn't too bad from there. He could commute pretty quickly, even before I-95. So I grew up in a sub-making family. And, uh, I mean, I don't know how far we want to go where I did after that, but after that, I'm really considered a a Wilmington boy.
0: Well, I feel like I remember now that you said it, that you're not from Wilmington, but I forgot about that, actually. So, I'm glad we uh, cleared that up. Well, anyway, I grew up mostly in Delaware, and um, you've stayed here, and you've made roots here, and uh, still live here. We've been in this house for, what? 30, 35 years 35 years 35 plus yes it's a beautiful home in Wilmington Delaware in the suburbs right by state park with a nice yard and i remember going out and running around the yard and playing with gianni and we'd pretend we were on you know on different worlds grew up star trek fans star wars fans big sci-fi uh, you a really are a huge influence in my love for film, and I remember you'd come back from the video store or the library with certain films that you felt you wanted to make sure that we had in our, in our backpack, basically, in our, in our brains, um, certain films that uh, you particularly valued, you know, Seven Samurai, uh, Manchurian Candidate, uh, Ben-Hur.
1: Magnificent Seven, the follow-up to the, uh, to the Seven Samurai, of course, and of and then, mm-hmm. without a doubt, you had the learning lessons in The Godfather. Godfather 1 and 2, primarily. And uh, as Andrew alluded, we we were Star Trek fans, uh, the next gen. And well, back then, we didn't record it or anything. So we were there every week looking at Star Trek Next Generation, all seven seasons. And the family did that. Uh, you know, my wife Paula, uh, Andrew, and Johnny, and... Uh, that was a real bonding experience and exposed us to, you know, a whole new world, as they say.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I know today we're going to be diving into the Charles Dickens masterpiece, A Christmas Carol. And I remember having a VCR, growing up with a VCR, a Zenith, was silver. Uh, you said you paid what? Six, seven hundred dollars for oh, it? Oh, they
1: were expensive when they first came out. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. VHS player. For those of you that don't know what that is. It was uh, this old machine that you would load tapes into that would play play videos uh but yeah anyway growing up begging you and mom to take us to um west coast video which is no longer there but i maybe that was what made me want to go west in the first place subconsciously because it was called west coast video but anyway i remember going in there and renting a lot of movies and you know we'd get movies for for gifts for birthdays and christmas and, and whatnot and uh, eventually, we'd start saving up enough money to go to Borders and get our own, or, or you know, but oftentimes we would just rent. And I remember we'd rent sometimes the same movie over and over again. Yes, we probably could have just bought them after a while. But then every now and then they would there be movies that would end up uh, in the the dollar bin or whatever. They used copies of tapes um, from the video store, and we would we'd buy them. So I remember you came home one day with a copy of Beetlejuice. Yes. And I was probably only five or six at the time when I saw that movie for the first time. And I didn't find it funny at all. I was pretty scared at most parts of it because it was pretty, pretty out there. You know, themes about death and resurrection and the afterlife and uh, ghosts, all that. But I remember you'd laugh and you, you loved it. And then after a while, I started to appreciate the humor. And those were formative movies. For
1: me. Oh, oh, oh Ghostbusters when that came out oh, yeah. I was looking at that I, I thought Andrew was up taking a nap so uh, and I was alone other than that in the house so I put Ghostbusters on and then if you remember the scene when they're in the library and they see a full torsoed apparition <laughs> okay and and he says I have a plan I have a plan and so at, at that moment you know when Uh, Bill Murray goes after him. Of course, the apparition turns into a a horrible ghost. Andrew walked in, scared the bejesus out of him. (laughs) I'm surprised he ever liked the movie as much as he did after that. Yeah, I'm obsessed. Um, Everything was timing.
0: Ghostbusters is another one that, um, yeah, I think, I remember I saw Alien way too young, uh, and it really scared me to death. And whenever I had a stomachache, I thought, oh, no. I have an alien <laughs> in me, ready to burst. So I don't know, maybe it was that these things were so formative and kind of scary, but also got my mind going in that direction, and uh, they're so creative and different, and fusing genres together. You know, Ghostbusters, that part is scary, you know, and, yeah. and uh, when the librarian becomes the scary ghost and screams. And yeah, I remember you and mom would put us to bed, and uh, and we'd sneak down if we couldn't sleep. Yeah and Johnny and I would come in, and that's funny that we came in right at that part. Scared us right back upstairs a bit.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that, that played out.
1: That'll learn you. You also were in the Army, right? Yes, I was uh, very fortunate. Uh, uh, the Army in its infinite wisdom sent me to Germany uh, in 1968 instead of Vietnam. I remember getting my orders. I was out washing a tank in February, which isn't a pleasant thing to do, in the first sergeant came out and said go down they have orders for me to go to Nuremberg Germany I said I'm not sure where Nuremberg is but I know it's not Saigon so I ran two miles with combat boots and all of that and and I wound up in a place called Bad Kissingen, Germany for my tour which was 18 months and uh, and then I wound up taking a European discharge as it was called I figured I never would be able to go back to Europe again so I Stayed over there uh, five and a half months, seeing as much of Europe as I could. And uh, that was a very interesting thing uh, for me. I did not realize that my career would take me back to Germany uh, many times over the 39 years.
0: Yes. I have memories of going over there as a very young kid. Um, going on the what felt like an eternity on the plane and my ears hurting me as a kid. And are you telling me to open my mouth and release the pressure pop pop your ears all that but yeah i got uh i got to travel a lot and you and mom were had a travel agency from 1981 to 2018 just a couple years back you sold it so yeah i was um privileged in that regard in the traveling the world i you know i've been to Europe several times and uh all over the caribbean and and whatnot so i've uh I'm grateful for those experiences. And I think that also had a lot with me to, you know, seeking out other cultures and to seek out new civilizations. Yes. Boldly (laughs) go.
1: And and I always needed to smell a diesel fuel, whether it was coming from a plane, a train, or a motor coach. You know, I (laughs) I just had to be out there and and doing it, which is one of the reasons, uh, the motivating reasons that uh, uh, my wife and I we went into the travel business.
0: Because mom was doing it in the 70s, right? Correct. She and then, did. It, yeah. And then you guys met and she infected you with that bug.
1: Oh, I had it. Or you she, already had she it? Just had she just had to it fan a flame. She just had to fan the flame. You had
0: already been over to Germany a lot. You were working yes. with um, some folks in Germany, yes, right? I, some I was
1: working as a uh, marketing slash sales slash translator uh, for a German company.
0: Yeah. Cool. That's exciting. We still have to record your memoirs about. All your time's in the Army. Yes, uh, yes. But I remember a couple years ago you started writing or you were rewriting a story about one of your first sergeants, The Beast.
1: Oh, yes. That was an interesting guy. He was... Uh, my, my first first sergeant was uh, Roosevelt Dickerson, Jr. He was a African-American from Nebraska, which is something that I had not heard of. And he was a very large man. Very, he wasn't <laughs> fat. He was just... Big. And uh, the, the name that they called him behind his back was the Beast. And real quick story, to digress. I, they made me a troop clerk because I could type. And uh, so I'm in the orderly room, the office, and Sergeant Harvey, I'll never forget this young sergeant comes in. And the first sergeant had stooped down behind the counter to pick up something, and I and, and to watch it. So Harvey sticks his head in and he goes, He goes, my, where's the beast? And so the first sergeant stood up on his tiptoes, made himself look even bigger. Harvey turned whiter than he was and left the room. (laughs) And then, you know, first sergeant Dickens, he gave the biggest smile I ever seen, you know, was he, he liked that reputation. He was a, he was a very good first sergeant.
0: That's great. I I keep hearing all these tall tales of these, these folks and. You and I are writing together right now. We are. Uh, we wrote a script about 13 years ago, and um, I've been really enjoying. We just just this year got back to it. It's a story called mm-hmm. Lady Jane, loosely based off your father's experiences in his uh, golden years. Yeah. Um, you the, go ahead. the
1: working title is Lady Jane. Right. And uh, 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 my father, after my mother died and uh, my grandmother died, he moved into a, a senior assistant... A, a senior assistant living community in Wilmington, and he would convey these little vignettes to me every once in a while. And uh, I thought that this would be a good background for an interesting story. And uh, as Andrew said, we started this thing 10, 12, whatever years ago, mm-hmm. and, uh, and now we finally are around to dusting it off. And we did our second draft already, and we feel pretty good about it.
0: Yeah, we did it over Zoom. And it's been great, and um, I know you've kind of been a writer off and on, as I've also been a little off and on, but it seems that we both have a love for coming back to it, and um, it's been really a joy to, to work with you. And it, over Zoom, you know, which I discovered actually doing the show, and right when the pandemic hit, uh, when I first started the show, I would have the guest with me as Dad is now, but then when uh, the coronavirus was sweeping the, the country and the world... I started doing it over Zoom, so I learned how to work over Zoom. And then uh, another partner, writing partner of mine, Chase Offerley, who's also been on the show, he <laughs> and I were writing over Zoom when I came back uh, last year for about six weeks. You know, most my, my job was still shut down, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to go home for longer. So I was writing with you, and then I was writing with him over Zoom. But yeah, it's been working out pretty well, and uh, we're going to be doing our read-through and... For a draft starting starting soon, but uh, you just wrote something last year about uh, it was based off of um, somebody in the army. Was it Joe Butler or Private Butler? Something like that.
1: Yeah, I wrote a, a, a you know a, a short narrative about uh, one of the other troop clerks that I know, and uh, part of it's true, of course, and part of it isn't. Uh, and uh, before that, though, I interviewed a. Uh, he was. This was like four years ago. He was 96 years old, and uh, he was a, a a pilot in the latter days of the Second World War over the over the south of France, and he was shot down, and uh, he survived a crash, and he was able, with the help of the French underground, to escape uh, the, the the German forces uh, via Switzerland. So I I took those facts and I wrote. Uh, a, a lengthy three part short story for him that it was actually published, so in three parts. And that was very interesting because it took some research. I had, well, he would be talking about, you know, jug or whatever, and I would have to look and see, uh, you know, what that was. And because I knew it was going to be published uh, in, in a specific journal, I, I couldn't. Use the language that was really being spoken at that time in the army, and uh, anyway, it was a uh, it was well received.
0: Yeah, that's super exciting. And Dad and I have another project that we've been mulling around for a few years. It's a science fiction. Yes. Since yeah. he and I are both massive sci-fi fans, and sci-fi really is exciting because you can talk about now or talk about things that are going on now, but set it in a distant future or not so distant future in our case. Um so we'll be uh keeping you abreast about developments down the road with that one. But uh really been enjoying working with you recently and we're going to keep it up and keep writing together cuz we both we both need it, I think. slash love it. So, um it's good to have a partner in crime, especially when you're staring at the blank page, which can be very very overwhelming.
1: Without a doubt, I've been there, so I know what you mean.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So I find that, you know, when we're writing together, one of us might be on a groove, maybe we're both on the roll, but usually between the two of us we can we can figure it out, find a solution and uh, see eye to eye on a lot of things and then sometimes one of us will think of something that the other one had no idea that that was, you know, right there in front of us or, or not in front of us. So it's been really exciting. I know I need it. When I don't when I don't express in some form via the podcast or acting or writing or directing uh i just i i can feel my mood going going south and i feel like you're very similar does that do you find that's true for you
1: yes I, I feel you need to be creative and it's it's a self-expression putting yourself out there and uh you know just as they say casting it out into the universe and see what happens and that's sort of what i feel collaboration is like if if, if, if Andrew has an idea or if I have an idea and uh, we just throw it out and that idea may not be the final concept that we land on but it, you know it's it, it starts the process of coming up with the final process <laughs> and yes. uh, uh this this second reading through uh uh the script that we have is we just were brutal about it it's almost like somebody saying you have a rose bush you want your neighbor to trim your rose bush in, uh, your worst enemy to trim your in bush in the, in the fall because <laughs> they'll take all of it out where you know you can't be gentle with it
0: you right. have to you
1: have to be brutal actually
0: yeah like kill your babies is another metaphor that I hear same same concept you know well I think having the time to set something aside for as long as we did gave it a lot of time to sit and uh, a lot of perspective because sometimes when you just write something you still see what you're trying to do or the vestiges of what you were trying to do versus what actually was attained or not. So enough time had gone by and I knew we had written it, but enough time had gone by. And I know, I mean, for me, you know, it was a third of my life went by or so. So it felt like another person had written it almost. I saw myself in there and you as well, but I felt like we could easily kind of say, all right, this isn't really working. And, I've learned a lot since then, and I've written a lot more since then. And I think the only way to really do it is to just do it. You can take all the classes you want. You can read all you want, but you got to get in there and get your hands dirty and and try it out. And like Dad said, cast it into the universe. Or you have your easel and you've got your paintbrushes, same metaphor. you just got to throw something on the easel and, and see if it sticks. Having the time separated away from it, I think, helped cool the emotions to be more like you said, brutal, (laughs) with uh, this is clearly not communicating at all. I mean, I don't know what we were trying to do here or whatnot, but...
1: Oh, yeah. I I mean, every once in a while, we would come across uh, some lines or a scene. we go, hey, this stuff's really good. Who wrote this stuff? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Really good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. On the other side of the coin, (laughs) I felt that there were a lot of things that were working. And, yeah, and then, right, and I don't remember actually writing that line or, or coming up with that part or whatnot, so it was kind of exciting to see what was playing well and a lot did and it's still the core of the story was there and um so yeah i'm really looking forward to uh getting back to that more and um honestly i feel like over zoom it it works really well it feels like you're in the room with me so i agree i'm excited zoom's good zoom's great and we we carve out time we we figure out the week ahead of schedule my work schedule is kind of all over the place i'm freelance and i work at a part-time at a hotel and Sometimes I'm really busy, and other weeks I have more time. So kind of do our weekly check-in, and, and it's been great. So I'm excited to continue working with you.
1: Thank you. Same here.
0: So it was there a formative moment for you where you knew that you wanted to kind of be an artist? I know you ended up pursuing travel and you know other vocations, what have you, but was there a moment where you knew you were just loved the arts and you loved that world? Was there a, a formative moment or was it kind of a slow burn of being exposed to certain things?
1: Well, uh, you, you alluded back to uh, the church productions and one of the, I was in a church uh, Christmas play, and the, 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 the tailor of Gloucester actually, and, uh, that, and then the, the next year I said, I could write one of these. And so my wife and I, we did write a Christmas pageant you know and it was called the Toymaker's Gift. And I think it really started then where I wanted to to do something more than the, the songs and the poems and the little vignettes that I had been writing up to that point. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, to me would be the nascence of, of why I wanted to put myself out there because I thought I had something created to say, as to alluding back to what you just said, feeling good about it, being expressing oneself. And if somebody do not like it back then, they could just tear the page out, and right now all you got to do is click a button and it disappears forever. So my right. feelings aren't hurt.
0: Yeah, and I remember uh, there's a quote that I don't think you came up with, but you certainly used it properly over the years, is your eraser is, as your writer, is the, what is it, the eraser is the writer's best friend?
1: Correct. That's, that's, yeah,
0: <laughs> which... Uh, now you could say control Z or backspace or, or delete the delete key. And that's exactly right. We, we can just uh, clip things out. And as an editor, control Z means undo. So you got to try it. Hey, it's not working. Control Z. So I know back back then you, you guys would have to actually rewrite it on, on a type. And I remember reading about Ray Bradbury writing Fahrenheit 451 on a on a rented typewriter. So he went somewhere. And he said you'd have to buy, you know, rent the amount of time on the typewriter and you could literally hear the clock ticking in your ear. So he said, you know, you, you literally have that. Now, some people say they like that. I personally, that would drive me crazy. I don't know if I could make it. So, Red Brad Bradbury hats off to you, sir. Um, well,
1: often necessity is the is the motivation to complete a project and have it done. And. This uh, I'm told, and I have not been able to see it, but they said that uh, to go back to our theme, that, uh, that Charles Dickens sort of had to write a Christmas Carol or something like that to, to be, become financially successful again, because you know he was probably living more than his means, and uh, so it was a great motivation. You know, as they say in German, not necessity will break iron or as mm-hmm. we say, you know, uh as the mother of invention.
0: Love that. Love that. And yeah, sometimes as artists, we want to work when we feel inspired or we want to work when it feels good. But I often find that, and this is another thing about having a partner. It's like having a gym partner, you know, like I can't tell you how many days I don't feel like it, or I'm just like, Oh and I'm not in the zone right now, but by having somebody or having the deadline that we've obviously self-imposed or, or, you know, if we actually do have a deadline, I, I do find that it does give me a little fire under the butt to, to get the job done. Because otherwise you can just say, oh, I want it to be perfect. And I keep hearing the I keep hearing the quote that uh, that a bad script is still better than the unwritten script. You know, yes. it's like, yeah. oh, it's perfect in my mind, <laughs> but you got to get it out. You got to actually express it out in some medium for it to be a piece of art. So, And as artists, we can be in our heads a lot. And it's important to think. It's important to give yourself time to to think and ponder. I think that's important. But it has to be a ratio of ponder and action. So having those deadlines and having you or another partner has helped me tremendously. A lot. Because I think you need to have some kind of structure. Otherwise, it's it's really hard to, to get around to it. Well, all right. I think we're pretty, we're pretty good shape to, to jump into uh, Charles Dickens.
1: Yes, by all means.
0: All right, welcome back. Today we have the awesome responsibility of talking about one of the many adaptations of the beloved, revered A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Now, I remember growing up, another film that scared me, like Ghostbusters, was A Christmas Carol. Even more so. And I believe you had taped this version off TV. Was it HBO or something? I, I can't recall, but yes. Yeah. So we had, I know i know for a fact that we had a tape with the handwritten by you, Xmas Carol, George C. Scott on it. Right. And I remember, I think you zapped out the commercials, or I don't think there were commercials, actually. Um, I think there was a trailer in the beginning, if I recall right. But anyway, 1984, directed by Clive Donner, starring George C. Scott as Scrooge, we have Frank Finlay as Jacob Marley. Angela Pleasance, daughter of Donald Pleasance, as Ghost of Christmas Past. Edward Woodward as the Ghost of Christmas Present. Michael Carter as the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come. And David Warner as Bob Cratchit. Susanna York as Mrs. Cratchit. Anthony Walters, the then-introducing Anthony Walters as Tiny Tim. And Roger Reese, who went on to become the Sheriff of Rottingham in the 1993... Uh, Men in in Tights tights. Uh, Fred Hollywell narrator so Roger Mm -hmm. Reese. this this version of the movie is my favorite it will always be my favorite I believe I've seen most of the other ones and not to knock them at all I believe every rendition I've seen has been at least good and I love seeing continued renditions of it coming out I remember going to see the Uh, Robert Zemeckis won in 2009 with Jim Carrey in 3D, and that was a lot of fun. Um, And that one brought a lot of visual insanity and uh, fun to it. But there is something about this version, maybe it's because it was my first, so I I, I will always have a special um, love for this one, but you and I, it used to be the four of us over the years, but then it slowly became you and I would just Splinter off and watch it, and we watch it every, every single year. Yes. Yeah, I really feel that I have an obligation and a duty to tout this particular version because I love it so much, and I think George C. Scott is Scrooge. When I think of Scrooge in my head, George C. Scott is the face. Um, for you, what was uh, what was the, what was the reason you gravitated towards this? this version? Because we don't watch the other ones every year. We watch this one every year.
1: Well, uh, a, a couple of reasons. Uh, one, uh, the scene takes place, uh, the winter scenes, the, well, they're all winter, of course, in a town called New Shrewsbury, England. And I had been there and uh, in that town, in that marketplace, which they use for the, uh, where the poulter is in the, uh, the, 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 in the opening. So I, I, I saw that. It really looks like that Today, and that sort of excited me. And uh, what were you doing there? I I I had a group. Oh, you had a group. We were touring England and Ireland, and we spent two nights in Shrewsbury. And uh, John Cleese was in the hotel with us, (laughs) so he was pretty big that time with the Monty Python. 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 Yeah, still is. Yeah. And uh, matter of fact, I just saw him in a a recent film. Anyway, the um, still gone. Uh, so that was it, and it and it came closest to the book as I recollected at the time. The, There's only one difference that I'm sorry that George C. didn't have in it, and that's the quote when he, when the ghost of a uh, Christmas present opens up his cloak and he shows, you know, a, a, a boy and a girl that are emaciated and tiny, and their eyes are howled and darkened. And you know, the boy is ignorant, and the girl is want. Okay, uh, and that, thats what's said in the movie. You know, we in the in the book. It says, "Of, of the two, beware of the boy most." Right. And so we have ignorance, you know, trumping want. Um, so I—I I don't. Know. I just. Yeah, everybody I, wants. Yeah. But if you're ignorant
0: about it, then you're <laughs> yeah. really in trouble.
1: Correct. You got to be smart enough to know uh, what you need, and what you need correctly yeah so anyway uh, and I always like the old British thing the old midi- from medieval all the way you know up to uh, anything that's a period piece I'm, I'm addicted to but and then over the years you know I started looking at it and, and reading in it and, and Andrew and I we sort of were able to to quote the line before the actor did, you know yeah uh, so it sort of be- became fun to do that and and we, we would see something different each and every time we saw it. It wasn't boring to us. And uh, I don't know if I answered your question or if I'm going on too long.
0: No, no, I love it. Um, I love all this. And this, first off, this is a real, real joy. And I've, I've been wanting to have you on the show since I started doing it. And it just kind of clicked that this would be the, the film that we, we would choose. And um, I have since read your old copy of... Uh, what did you say 1977
1: you got this 77 we got it right
0: here it's a pretty uh we've beaten up a little over the years although you keep it in a pillowcase um the plastic pillowcase holder which you put a lot of your books in which is a really nice trick for those of you that want to keep your books in good shape especially if it's been a long time and uh we actually lost it for a minute and then i fortunately found it because dad has you have the room upstairs with all the books and all your copies of Time Magazine and whatnot. So anyway, it's kind of treasure trove of a room, and I finally read it a couple of years back. But I remember even when I was younger, you would pull it out around the holidays, around Christmas, and you would read some of it. And then I finally did. And it, it's an annotated version, so it tells you, you know, what Dickens' time period would be going through to give you kind of a perspective and, and all that. So, but only after seeing this particular version and a lot of other versions, but we keep coming back to this one, and I, I just think George Scott's realization of of Scrooge and a lot and all the actors are great, but there's something about George Scott with his weathered face, and that beard, and the way he smiles, even in the beginning when he's when he's upset, but he seems to just have this love for being grumpy, and I, I don't think I was cognizant cognizant of it as a kid, but what is so good about Christmas Carol in general, especially when it's done well, is the cathartic catharsis that it really gives you. Because we get to see a miser transform into a non-miser, a, a happy person. We get to see the redemption. We get to see this person literally transform, and it's a brutal transformation. It's a, it's a scary transformation. And I believe that the horrors that he witnesses shakes him out of being a miser. And I believe that this particular version does the horror justice. I mean, the Jacob Marley, portrayed by Frank Finlay, um, who just passed a couple years ago, he is terrifying. I mean, it's, it's, it's scary. Like, I thought this movie was a horror film when I grew up. It was, practically. But there was something about it, not just that it was a Christmas girl, it's got the word Christmas in the title, but it really teaches you... How to be not only a good Christmas celebrator, <laughs> but a good person.
1: Well, you have to reflect back on the period, uh, what was going on in uh, England at the time. They were in the middle of the industrial revolution. Revolution, I'm sorry, industrial revolution, and uh, you know, they, and, and ten years before he he wrote this, they had something called the Factory Act, which reduced the number of hours the children could work in the factory, uh, you know, to only nine hours a day, six days a week. So, <laughs> so what was it before, you know? And, right. Um, Horrible conditions. Uh, uh, yes. And so, uh, and then they had the workhouses, and which is alluded to in the, uh, you know, are there no workhouses, are there no prisons? Are there no prisons? Yeah. And... Uh, the workhouses. You would have, if you could not pay your bills, you would go there and you would work under horrible conditions uh, until you were able to pay off your debts. So one of the children, you know, and uh, Dickens was exposed to that, you know, his uh, in his early life. As a matter of fact, he had no intention of writing anything called a Christmas Carol, and I find this particularly interesting. He he wanted to write something. He had to write something because. Uh, His previous novel was not doing very well, and his editor, or publisher, I'm sorry, was threatening to cut his stipend and and all of that. So he was in a particular financial fix, again, necessity, uh, uh, being the mother of invention. And so he was going to write something, and I'm going to quote this. It was called, An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. Now, can you see that on a marquee? <laughs> can you see that on the title of a book to say, hey, I want to read that. That sounds really great. It's,
0: it's not very catchy. Time.
1: And so he finally rethought it. He had an epiphany. And he goes, I'm going to write something that's going to, that everybody will read and see what is going on and what is happening. And he came up with the concept of a Christmas carol. A carol, of course, being something that's sung and has stanzas or staves. As mm-hmm. they were called back then, and there were five of them in this one, as we know, and they're uh, like X, right? Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, essentially, you know. and um, so that, that's that's how he, he got to what he was doing, and uh, the book was published in, on the nineteenth of December in nineteen forty-three. Okay, they did one one edition. It sold out by the end of the month. Mm. By the end of next year, there were eighteen. I believe, I'm quoting from 18 editions, sold out. This thing went off the shelves. It exploded. You know, you know uh, like, like hotcakes, as, as they would say. And I'm just trying to think of a, of a book that had the same effect.
0: And well before Harry Potter.
1: Yeah, well before Harry Potter, yes. Yeah. And um, so it did have an effect on the people. And at the time, the British people were going through a cultural change as far as Christmas Christmas was being put on the back shelf, and presents were actually given on New Year's. Uh, So, But as a result of this book, he, an artist, influenced history uh, by by changing Christmas to being celebrated as it is. Uh, As a matter of fact, the Christmas tree at that time was coming into vogue, uh, primarily because Prince Albert of Saxony, who married Queen Victoria... You know, he wanted to have something of his home country. So the German Christmas tree was introduced and there was a picture of it. And, of course, everybody was going gaga, you know, over the royals, which they still seem to do.
0: (laughs) Right. Tastemakers, trendsetters.
1: Yes. And uh, uh, and so it all worked out. So his influence has been been on Christmas as as much as the... uh, The poem uh, "The Night Before Christmas" has changed it, and as much as Coca-Cola has changed Santa Claus being in red and white, so (laughs) all of these things keep changing. But you have to go back to uh, the the, well. They made a movie, "The Man Who," the man who invented Christmas. Yeah, I remember we watched three years, four years ago. Yeah, we watched it two uh, years ago together. and, And yeah, we did, and it was fantastic.
0: Yeah, and I didn't realize, you know, Charles Dickens being the man who invented Christmas. I didn't realize how much of like you just said I didn't realize how much that a Christmas carol had actually influenced the holiday itself. Yeah, and the spirit of giving and the spirit of generosity and you know, you know on a, on Christmas day you walk to a store and it seems like people are opening the door for you more than uh, and maybe you find yourself opening the door more for yeah. the person behind yeah. you. That kind of that kind of vibe and mentality was you know, is often credited to, to Dickens, so we have a yeah. new thank.
1: Well, that holds true unless you're a, a bunch of grandparents fighting for the last toy for your grandchild, <laughs> and it's on sale at Target. So
0: right, jingle all the way with Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> and uh, of course all the you know, but uh, the, co- the corporate consumerist elements of Christmas. But uh, you know, like like Cratchit said about his uncle, that he, he doesn't even use his money to to make himself happy or, or to, to make himself even more comfortable. You know, well, it, so the uh, idea it, of being a miser in the sense that you don't use your money even for yourself. Yeah, you...
1: that that was uh, that was uh, Scrooge's nephew uh, that, that that said that. But let's let's go before we delve into the into the story itself. I mean, a couple of things uh, that that are of interesting uh, that uh, that added to my enjoyment of why I pursued it is Dickens is coming up with the names of characters. Yes. You know, Scrooge has been parseced as being screwed and, and all of that and being squeezing and uh, malicious and, and, and all of that, but the, the, the great one is with Marley. He's at a cocktail party or something, and, and this dentist uh, comes up to him and he goes, oh, you, you like interesting names, I understand, Mr. Dickens, my last name is Marley. And so Dickens said to him, sir, your name will be on everybody's lips by the end of the year. <laughs> nice. So, sure enough, you know. He,
0: Not he, just on their teeth.
1: Yeah, right, Exactly. <laughs> so any, anyway, um, he, uh, he, he would collect these names and use them in his stories. And even the name Cratchit, uh, I don't know the, in the etymology of that name, but it sort of has its own depiction of being Rickety, you know, or not stable mm-hmm. or anything, and then as the story progress we know we'll will discuss how that changed.
0: Tiny Tim with his crutch. Yeah. they're very poor, obviously, because Scrooge doesn't pay him enough, and, uh, and he
1: doesn't want to lose his situation.
0: You'll keep your Christmas by losing your, your situation.
1: situation.
0: <laughs> so. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every twenty of December.
1: Yes, yes. Don't give away all the clues yet. We still got to Oh yeah, let's work our talk. way through.
0: I know. There's so much to so much to say, so much to, to talk about here. Um. So, did you love a lot of the other renditions growing up? Did, did you find yourself seeking them out? Or, or was there a point where... When did your fandom for this really kick in? Was when when you got this book in the 70s? Uh,
1: well, I think that, that you know, added to it. Uh, right. The, the ones in black and white that some of our friends claim to be the better ones. Uh, I mean, that's... Incorrectly you know, claimed. Inco- nice. you know, and, and I don't argue with them. Bless them. Uh, as long as they're happy. But, uh, the, as a child in black and white, I don't know, I, I always felt cold. I didn't see the true joy that that came out with, with, uh, George C. Scott. One of the things he does, and he portrays that in his movies, he, I remember the first movie I remember seeing him in was one called The Hustler. Um mm, Paul Newman. Yeah, Paul Newman, that was in black and white. And, uh, Uh, Jackie Gleason was in that. Uh, Who did his own pool shots, a la Willie Moscone. George C. Scott, he was able to have such a facial character that was interesting, you know, and animated. And you felt like he really enjoyed Sticking it to those guys, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You know. Well, my price will go up five percent tomorrow. You know, and, uh, and so he really enjoyed doing the, that. The price he, of corn will be higher tomorrow if you he wait. he really enjoyed talking to those guys that were collecting for the poor. You know that he, he, he contri- his taxes contribute to the workhouse and, uh, and to the it uh, was the uh, the Factory Act still not enforced and all, and, all, and that he he took pleasure in being a vicious person. And um, So, and then as he progressed, this is really like a Christian redemption story, if if I want to say, you know, he eventually saw the light, except Mm -hmm. he had to be hit in the head four times before he saw the light, and he had to face (laughs) his own death as being someone who was not remembered fondly, or if at all, and finally, he he did, uh, he did achieve that, and he, he said, "I will celebrate Christmas in the past, and in the present, and in the future." So he was really serious about that, and you, and you saw the joy on the day he opens up, when he opens up the window, when he says, "Hey, boy, what day is it?" And he goes, "Why, it's Christmas!" Why Christmas day? Of <laughs> and then he goes, "You know, I'm as giddy as a schoolboy. I, f- I forget that little tirade, but uh, and
0: I'm as light as a feather. Yes, I'm as giddy as a drunken man.
1: <laughs> so, yeah." Uh, but um, it's a lot of fun to see the transition. It, it is. And, and you, it's powerfully and you emotional. Feel, it. You yeah. know, when you feel the joy in his heart that, you know, if, if, uh, you know, as a Christian would say, hey, he's been saved. OK. And there's a certain amount of joy in that.
0: Right. The, the idea of um, our soul. I never thought of it as the kind of Christian metaphor in that his soul. It's not just his life that's, you know, and he's in his golden years now. Um, he's kind of, in a way, wasted a lot of his life. And he says at the end, forgive me for all the time I've wasted when he goes to when he goes to his um, his uh, his nephew's house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And but the idea that his soul is is at stake. And, you know, when Marley shows up in the chains and he says, oh, is the pattern not familiar to you? Would you know that you they were the same length as yours seven years ago upon the night of my death? It is a ponderous chain. You have
1: labored upon it. You have labored yeah. upon
0: it since Ebenezer. It is a ponderous chain. <laughs> and, uh, and obviously humbug. And he says, you know, I don't believe in you. And he's like, um, appealing. I never thought of it that way. Appealing to his very soul. That yeah. he would be condemned like Marley to seek the joy that his, his soul in life never sought or attained.
1: And uh, he doesn't use the word humbug, uh, I think, in the, in the last three or four. The only time you hear it is when his nephew says, uh, humbug. But he doesn't use it meaning what it is. And the word humbug is another way of saying it's crap. Yeah. Okay. And, and actually,
0: um, to, 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 to talk about that more, Dad and I, like I said, originally we saw a one-man version of A Christmas Carol on the 30th of December, just last week, and uh, with a guy named Anthony Lawton, who I am still unpacking how amazing and how powerful it was to see a one-man show. But not just that it was a one-man show, but A Christmas Carol has that narrator element, so therefore the actor in front of you is not only playing out all the parts, but he's also becoming the narrator. So it was somewhere between... It felt like a new medium to me. It felt somewhere between reading it, which I did, like I said, a couple years back, and and seeing it, and he would stop and say, all right, guys, and he would, you know, kind of break the fourth wall and look at the audience from time to time throughout the piece and say, all right, guys, do you really know what Humbug really means? Right now, like, Humbug, it's become kind of, you know, we know it for its association with The Christmas Carol, but it meant, like, it was a pretty nasty thing to say. And he let us know that. He He would clue us in and give us references throughout, like... Humbug doesn't mean just like, oh, phooey. Like, humbug is a much, much nastier F-words and, and what have you, you know. Um, so there's kind of a cutesyization of it over time, but there was another thing that he would do that I loved was give you the kind of perspective and the relativity. Like, in the very beginning, he asked the audience how many people really understood what the work program is that you so eloquently <laughs> gave us just a little while ago. Um, and one guy, I think, in the back raised his hands and then he said, "Liar! You don't know." It was really, really incredible, and I, I got a hats off to uh, to Anthony Lawton and the Lantern Theater Company um, for, for for doing that because it was just it was just great. And he basically just had one prop; it was a podium, which he would lay down and use it as a desk or, or as a coffin or as a what whatever a
1: springboard,
0: a springboard, a dinner table. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he had some little props in his, um, in his jacket and he had the kind of white face, like the clown. Yes,
1: the white face. Well, uh, the, the go- to go back to clowns again. Yeah, go back. Well, white face, you know, started with the Greeks, you know, because they needed to have it white so that people in the back row of the amphitheater could, could see the expressions on their face. But uh, later on, it evolved to where clowns would, you know, the mimes would wear white face so you would see how they felt by the way they acted, and not by the expression on their face. So it sort of went against what it mm. was to evolve to what it to what it is. And um, you know, and, and Lawton uh, was in whiteface, uh, not a very total whiteface as a clown, but and but you knew ex- once you once you started believing what he was doing, you were right there because oh everybody in in that theater, you know, and it was. A, because of covid it wasn't that crowded at all but mm-hmm. everybody there has been exposed to the christmas carol in one form or another so they, they know the story and it was easy for them you know to relate and go along go along with it but he was an hour and 40 minutes by himself under the lights no intermission it, it was quite an endeavor uh, my hats off to this to this man and, and he, he's not that young you know that he could be jumping up on that podium the way he did. He
0: moved around like incredibly. He would he would mutate into the different characters, or they're old or young. Um, and like I was talking with Dad after we saw it. It's, you you forget you're looking at one person. You know, you kind of after after 10 minutes in it's it's like you could just see everybody. You could feel everybody there. It it didn't feel labored. It didn't feel strange and it had its own kind of cadence to it. And the way he could... I thought, man, I thought going in, man, is that going to be weird, being one, just one guy? Is it going to just feel kind of silly or strange? But again, it felt like its own medium where he would narrate and then then he'd break the fourth wall again and talk about... You know, we were talking about the Ghost of Christmas Present and talking about the, uh, the buying and selling and the, the fair and the, the exchange. Um, he would talk about Philadelphia references and... Uh, you know. oh,
1: yes, yes, it was, it was very well, Ex- excellently mm. done.
0: Yeah, he would snap into kind of present and give you, you know, oh, he had a ZZ Top beard and, uh, <laughs> you know, and give you kind of present references. But then he would immediately click back in, back into the piece. Right. Um, so it was kind of its own beast. And we had just seen, uh, again, we had done our, um, I believe it was Christmas Eve or the day before we watched the George C. Scott version, which we're talking about. And so I thought, oh man, here we're getting we getting a second helping. Although usually around June or July, I'm like six more months till we watch it again. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> so honestly, it was a real joy to see this, see it done. And um, and obviously, you find yourself comparing the delivery and the cadence to the way it was in the film. But um, oh man, it just was great. I, I hope I hope it uh, continues and I hope it, it explodes. I would love to see, I could see, you know, like a filmed version of it going on Netflix and and really doing a lot of numbers. Mm -hmm. I I really, just a few angles, you know, two, three angles, nothing complicated. You want to keep the simplicity of it alive in the the film medium, you know, but it it was unbelievable. It was just, thanks again for bringing
1: me. You're very welcome. Yeah. Uh, My job as a parent is to expose you to as many things as possible for your personal edification and education.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well well said. And you've done that time and time again, so thank you. And it was just really fun. It was fun to go up to Philadelphia, and especially this year where uh, really, you know, everything's kind of shut down again and uh, we're all afraid of Omicron and all that. So it was nice to get out and, and see live theater. I know we were a little worried about it because of uh, the recent spike, but we wore our masks and like Dad said, it wasn't that crowded. I'd love to see that packed house every night. But another thing that I really learned from this that I didn't know about Dickens was that he was also an actor, and yes. he, would, he would act it out.
1: He, um,
0: like, like we saw Lawton do, right? Ex- exactly. Uh,
1: what, what he would do is, as, uh, as I said, he was in a, in a pinch for money, and you know how authors would go on book tours today. Uh, but what he would do um, is uh, he, would, he would go and, and make public readings of it. And he actually came out with something in 1846, uh, uh, I believe, when he was doing these readings, where he rewrote the introduction and everything. It uh, didn't at all affect the story. But I think it would have been a fascinating thing to do to hear him read what he wrote, exactly how he wanted, how it was playing in his mind's ear, you know, sort of mm-hmm. and And... Um, uh, he did not expect it to be the success that it was, but it, it was, and as I said, it, it changed you know, Christmas history.
0: Yeah, it's very powerful stuff. I guess he, um, I remember reading in the playbill of the, the rendition. We just saw the Anthony Lawton one up in Philly that in the playbill had a lot of information um, that uh, it was originally three hours long at one point, point that he, you know, and then he, he would whittle it down and whittle it down until about an, an hour, an hour and a half or so. So that it was actually quite a bit
1: longer. Yes, there there were some some interesting thing themes that are left out that that would help with the uh, uh, with the understanding of the metamorphosis of Scrooge from being uh, a first class miser to a to a first class you know provider for Tiny Tim and his family. Mm-hmm. And uh, and to, to go back to the to the movie with Scott, I mean. When the the last scene when he's in there with Cratchit, who came twenty minutes late on on the day after Christmas. What uh, business do you have coming
0: uh, in here at this time of day?
1: You know, and of course Cratchit is shaking in his boots, <laughs> and then he goes, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna increase your salary." And He throws him a, a sack of coins, and and Cratchit's looking at him and saying, dumbstruck, "What, what, what, what have you been drinking? What, what yeah. happened? You know, <laughs> how did all this happen in less than a day?" And um, right. right. Uh, you could you just knew what was going through his mind but he was too polite to say what are you going nuts? So
0: Yeah, I and I thought David Warner's um David Warner's Cratchit was just so good. And and the two of them together are just so electric to watch. And uh you know, despite George C. Scott's miser miserliness in the beginning, um, <laughs> Cratchit still just was nice to the nephew. He clapped when the nephew spoke and did his speech, and uh, before threatening to be fired, and he, he just he kind of just seemed to know how to how to survive in this hostile climate, I, I guess. Yeah, despite obviously being worried that he was going to lose his job and and all that, but there was a there was a real humanity that he brought to the character. And David Warner is one of my favorite actors, and he's also a Star Trek actor. Um, he's been in a couple of the films. He was in Star Trek five, he was in Star Trek six. He played Chancellor Gorkhan in Star Trek six. And I don't want to get too off topic, but, uh, he also played the interrogator in a, the two parter chain of command where I remember even se- seeing it originally in the early nineties, mom got upset. And I remember watching it and it was being the only episode that really upset mom. And there's some torture and Picard's being tortured. And David Warner is the torturer. Uh, you know, and he's trying to get him to admit that there are, uh, three lights in there was it five lights anyway there's four lights <clears throat> and he won't buckle and uh, so seeing the actor that I really most associated with being a, a menacing figure a villain portray this sweethearted Cratchit and and doing it so well um, you know and again like like seeing George C. Scott portraying Scrooge I, I always see David Warner when I think of Cratchit I, I will always think of him um, so anyway I just thought that the cast was absolutely perfect. The Tim is just so lovable and so <laughs> just tiny Tim. I mean,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and the way they make him pale and and sticky looking and pasty and just not ha- healthy looking, uh, really plays out. And I guess that was his first his first role the uh, the child who played Tim. It was, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, what are what are some other things that you think this version nailed so well? as opposed to other versions. Again, I don't want to discredit other versions, but what is it about this one for you? Uh, just well, uh, crushing You it? know,
1: we already, you know, uh, George C. Scott and the actors, uh, was was just spot on. It, it was, you know, very, very realistic. You, you know, once you, you know, went through the wall, as you said, the fourth wall, you, you just believe, well, I'm really here. And, uh, this is really happening, and, and you're sort of rooting for him, mm-hmm. and uh, and the way that the, the ghost of Christmas present, the spirit as he calls him, you know, ages before your eyes, that's, that's oh pretty God, yeah. real. I mean... Yeah,
0: Edward uh, Woodward as the ghost of Christmas present.
1: You know, so they have his beard turning from gold, you know, to silver, you know, and his hair, and... Uh, I, I just I just, just love the, the looks of him the way they build it up. And, and it was interesting that you know, he left the, 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 the spirit of, of Christmas past, you know, which, which was a candle, a light and he puts it out with, with her hat which he's carrying, which is a, a taper. And then you go right into the spirit of Christmas present, which is total illumination, blinding light. Right. And so this comes to a you know, the concept is, you know, uh, we're trying to show him the light by almost blinding him. And then when he goes into the, the anteroom, you know, there's candles galore and everything. And all the feast and, and uh, all the food and uh, everything. It's just too much to behold. And uh, I'm surprised that then that he didn't uh, question the price of it. But he has already gone through the, the metamorphosis of, uh, partially, anyway, when he was with, in the Christmas past, when he was at the Fezziwigs, you know, and and he and the spirit says, you know, what did it cost him? Oh, a few a few pounds to bring that much happiness, and of course it's he's constantly being hoisted by his own petard, even being <laughs> his own words, you know. or are, right. are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? You know, and it, it's just very well written all together it's a great script
0: yeah it's a great script um uh roger o'herson adapted it from the dickens novel clive donner no relation to richard donner who went on to do his own version of of christmas carol in scrooge with bill murray i thought maybe maybe they're uh, brothers or cousins or something but no um but they just are both uh, directors that went ahead to do adaptations of this um and uh, let, let me talk about, I actually, I, I remember a couple years ago reading on Wikipedia, so this is right from Wikipedia, I uh, wanted just to talk about it a little bit, because obviously it was made for TV, so you can't get like a box office number, so you're looking at ratings and whatnot, but I always thought, man, is, do, did, this, did this thing kick butt, because I, I just really love this one, and I, I always feel like, again, obligated to, to, to spread the word on this one. But uh, this movie was filmed, a location, like you said, in Shrewsbury, Shropshire, in the English Midlands. It originally aired on the American television network CBS on 17th December 1984, which was the year of my birth. So another reason. And also the year Ghostbusters came out and was released theatrically. Oh, it did get a theatrical release in Great Britain. Okay. So in uh, in England, it got a theatrical release. The U.S. debut was sponsored by IBM, which purchased all the commercial spots for the two-hour premiere. It's about an hour and 40 minutes without commercials. (laughs) The film brought in a 20.7 out of 30 on the rating share, winning its time slot and ranking number 10 for the week. The film was marketed with the tagline, a new powerful presentation of the most loved ghost story of all time. Wow. That's a cool way to, you know, tagline. Scott was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actor, he should have won, obviously, in a limited series or a special for his portrayal of Scrooge. The movie has run in syndication <clears throat> on location on local American channels since the debut in 84 and was released on VHS in 89 and to DVD in 99. This was because Scott himself and later his estate through Baxter Healthcare to whom the Scott family donated their copyright owned the rights to this film. And on the 25th of November 2007, it returned to national television on AMC for the first time since its debut and the network continues to broadcast it each December under license from the Scott Estate and 20th Century Studios/Walt slash Disney TV. Uh, in 2009, the Hallmark Channel also ran the movie soon after Thanksgiving. It remains among the most beloved of the several adaptations of The Christmas Carol, and then in 09, the film was re-released on DVD and then in 2010 on Blu-ray, which we finally picked up. Yes. But 2015 I I got it as you for I got it for you as a gift. Yes. It was. Because we were tired of hunting it down over and over again (laughs) Uh, and we just had to have it so finally got it and um, I was hoping that it would come with some bonus features because I was really hoping to kind of learn a little bit more about the making of and whatnot
1: but sadly no. That wasn't done back then. That really
0: wasn't done back then for TV stuff mostly. (laughs) Um, But yeah. Anyway so I'm glad it uh, it did well and um, you know it's getting more uh, it's getting more steam and it's considered one of the better versions. And uh, I know just this year it was on Hulu and Paramount Plus, and I recommended it to a, uh, a few friends who reported back saying they were very impressed by it. So, And again, George C. Scott, what a guy. Yes. Uh, and it was really my buddy Paul Gonzalez who was just on my last episode of No Time to Die, episode 20. Sorry, No Time to Podcast about the final Daniel Craig James Bond he said, man, he really enjoys being Scrooge, really enjoys being miserable, doesn't he? And I think you just said it earlier, and it's true, he really loves it. But, you know, he's obviously kind of a masochistic because he's hurting, he's a little bit of a masochist because he's hurting himself a little every time he wounds someone else, which we find out later, but...
1: Uh, We we can, I don't know where we can go from here. We've sort of covered the gambit of the story. I mean, it's a it's not a very long one I mean um, as far as what else we could bring forth but um, I I think that having it it being touted as a ghost story um, was the best way for him to uh, make it palatable to the the English people you know and he wasn't shooting for Mm. the poor English people to read this which they probably couldn't because the first edition of the book was done, was, was like leather bound. It was expensive. It wasn't designed to be purchased by the poor, by the poor people, but by the upper class, the ones who were being viewed as being the oppressors of the children, you know, one of the people that don't have any money. You go to the ghost of, of, of Christmas present when he's there at the end of the movie. Eddie's with that family, you know, the the plea comes out, the guy says, I want to work, I have good hands, I can do this, and I don't want the family to be split up, because when you went into the workhouse, yes, you might have been fed and had a place to eat, but the women went one way, the kids went the other way, the father went the other way, they were split up. It was sort of a continuation of of, of slavery, uh, you know, where you... Yeah,
0: like indentured servitude or, or, yeah, or slavery, yeah, where you, know? you couldn't really get out of it.
1: And so, I mean, it, it split families up. Yeah. And um, so that's what he wanted the people to... He wanted to throw it in their face, but in a way that they wouldn't throw it away, but read it and absorb it. And he obviously was very successful in that by the number of copies that he sold uh, over the next year.
0: Yeah, it really became a phenomenon, and, and and like you said, not just a phenomenon of it being a popular thing or it was a big hit, you know, but it had a message, and it had a, a really powerful message, and um, I think that the message is is still as relevant as ever, if not more, with the widening gaps between rich and poor, and I know in my generation, you know, we've seen much more of a shrinking of the middle class, um, you know, and I know we've always, I've never gone hungry And, uh, you guys have certainly provided, um, over the years and I've never really experienced what it was like to be really poor per se. Um, we were never like rich, rich or anything, but I never like, I never literally was like, when am I going to eat again? You know, I never had that concern. So I think that the message is, is really strong because, you know, when you guys were growing up, you guys were the boomers or you were a little pre-boomer, I guess. Right. Yes. Um, but you know, you did better than the, your the generation before you overall. You've trended wealthier than the generation before you. You know, um, but now we're starting to see they kind of go in the other direction where it's harder and harder for this next generation to kind of rise above and and kind of outdo your parents. Um, you know, you and mom have done very well. You've had a couple houses. Um, you know, pretty successful business when the gettings were good in the travel agency. Uh, but now we're starting to see degrees meaning less, uh tuition going even higher. A lot of people are saying, Why do I even bother going to college? Why bother having a hundred thousand dollars in debt before I even, you know, start working? Um, so it's widening margins between the rich and the poor again. You know, with billionaires like Jeff Bezos, not to, you know, color him evil or anything, but we're seeing the rise of very, very powerful billionaires. Um and uh, Elon Musk's and Bill Gates and whatnot. And the opposite of the coin of, you know, Amazon had to fight for a living wage. You know, $15 an hour or the minimum wage going up. So it's those widening gaps that uh, I think it's going to get us in trouble. And it's it's sad. And, you know, Christmas is just a great way to embody messages that really need to be all year long. You know, but
1: uh and uh, exactly right and this book that was written you know i can't do the math 170 years 60 70 years ago okay right i mean uh, it's it's still relevant today perhaps even more so uh because of uh, the the technology has made everything geometrically more forceful and damaging uh the, to allude back to the uh, to the, uh, the ghost of Christmas present when You know, he says that the boy is ignorance and the girl is want. We have that today. We have ignorance which is causing a great amount of trouble across the political, social and medical spectrum. Okay, Mm. and uh, it's there. And uh, people refusing to look at the facts. And want, I mean, uh, I would... There's several examples of that, but the one that's most relevant is on our southern border. The people coming across want. They come from what because they didn't have and they live in a place where, where crime is rampant, poverty is, is, is prevalent, and so they just want to have a better future for themselves and, and their children. And that's where the want comes in. Uh, so here we are today reading Dickens' words and hopefully we'll, we'll get somebody that can be a Scrooge and, and turn it around with their, own, you know, self metamorphosis.
0: Yeah, and I think, I think that this, the metamorphosis has to be from from everybody. You know, I think we all have to do our part to look at what we can do to give, what we can do to liven up a room. I mean, I know that your attitude when you walk into a room is infectious. You know, you can walk into a room and what's that expression, smile even if you're not happy?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: you know, do it. Take the time to say, I love you. Take the time to say, thank you. And it's it's not always big things like, okay, if you're a billionaire, sure, you have the power to give millions of dollars to charity and whatnot. But it's not necessarily always that. It's, it's what you can give moment to moment when you walk into a room. And I know when I'm in a really bad mood, sometimes I'm like, I'm not even going to go because I'm just going to bring everybody down. But on the opposite side of the coin... I like being in a good mood and sometimes I need to get out and just to get out of my own head and get into a good mood and brighten everybody up and just do what I can, even if I'm faking it. You know, fake it till you make it. Like, pretend you're happy. And then, you know, after a couple hours, you might be actually happy. Right. Might even happen quicker than that. So, I don't know. It's it's the little things like, I mean, I know when people say, Andrew, you're doing a great job, like at work, or, or not at work, or, you know, I really appreciate what you've done over the years. That, that to me is worth... An infinite amount of money, like for Fezziwig, it was as if he had thousand yeah. pounds. You know the joy that he gave. Yeah. You know, so it's not always a financial breakdown metaphor. It's 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 a vibe. You know, when Scrooge says Bah humbug, get out of here, go away. I'm not going to dine with you. I'd rather, what I'd rather be, I'd rather burn in hell first, or whatever he says. Right, Yeah, uh, I'd rather see you in hell first. That hurts. You know that yeah. wounds, and at the end of the day, you're wounding yourself. Even more when you're mean, I think, because you're maintaining that that negative spiral, that negative attitude. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. But I look at A Christmas Carol as a really, really beautifully put together sermon. And it's funny that you brought up that it was an essay at first. You know, it which was to be an essay. It was to be an essay. So, but they grafted this powerful message, story, lesson into it. That's. You know, uh, Michael Crichton said, I want to inject a lesson, but put it in a sugar-coated capsule so that it's palatable and that you... You, you know, if it's just like, all right, we're at school, guys. Here's your lesson. Like, no, ew, I don't want that. But if it's pretty and fun and there's a there's a cool journey and there's fun characters that you can relate to and you can see and you can see it in your own life, therefore it is relatable and more powerful. And there is something about Christmas Carol. I I implore you, if you've never seen any version of it, watch it. I, You know... I know it's Christmas and I have a lot of friends that are Jewish and you don't get too caught up in that because I really believe that it is about humanity and um, it just uses the Christmas time metaphor to, to work to operate in but it is very much about just being a good person to those around you and those you love and those you work with and it's about people and it feels so good and I think around June July I'm like I can't wait to watch it like
1: you know. need it the 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 thing about the Christmas Carol is uh, there used to be morality plays before that if we go back further in the literary history and but the the character development the soul the person who was not being a good person slash being saved finally progresses through a series of challenges i.e you know those of Hercules, if I may go back to Greek mythology, you know, until mm-hmm. they, they come out at the end and then they are saved, they are good people, contributors to society. And that's what uh, this metamorphosis is. And I'm using that word because I want to swing back to the other famous work called the metamorphosis, Die Verwandlung by Franz Kafka. I mean, that was just the opposite of, of what we experienced here. And, you know, Kafka starts out, you know, one day Gregor Zamza wakes up and he, he finds that he's turned into a, an unkazifa, uh, a, a bug, some sort of an insect. And then it was downhill from there if you read the rest of it, you know. And, but his parents and sister and his family, they just keep going on and finally he dies and they sweep him away. Sort of like his other short story called The Hunger Artist, if you're into Kafka. But they, the, the characters develop, but for Kafka, they went downhill. <laughs> and, right. And a lot of them were here, it went uphill. It was an uplift. Kind of a reverse. Yes. Yeah. So.
0: Kind of like a lot of Will Ferrell movies.
1: And uh, I, I, you know, it, 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 it hit the mark. It did what it was supposed to do. It's, it's, the, it's the perfect package. And it's short, which goes back to, of course, Shakespeare's quote, In brevity is wit with being knowledge and intelligence as opposed to humor and this is very short very brief but it's full of insightfulness and meaning love
0: it well said dad alright I'm happy to land there if you are I'm sure we uh, we could ring the towel more and there's a million little things to to note and obviously there's been so many different iterations of it and each one has its own vantage point I loved reading it I really Enjoyed uh, reading your annotated version of it. Obviously, it's an older piece, so you need a little reference with some of the words and some of the diction. But, um, you know, for being almost 200 years old, uh, it's like Dad said, right on the money still. So, uh, if you haven't seen the 1984 version with George C. Scott, directed by Clive Donner, highly recommend it. It's currently on Hulu and Paramount Plus, although by the time you hear this, I'm not sure if it will be anymore. But I believe you can rent it on Amazon. And it is on DVD and Blu-ray, but any version is good that I've seen. So uh, go out, check it out. And if you haven't seen it in a while, it's time to dust it off and dive back in because it's really the best. Exactly. All Um, right, Dad. Thank you so much. This has been a real treat having you on my show. My
1: pleasure. Happy New Year to everybody out there. And I hope 2022 is the year that we're finally through with COVID.
0: I know. And if you listen to this in 50, 100 years from now or farther down the line, um, hopefully whatever time you're listening to this, you got something out of it. And thank you very much for checking it out. Until next time.